The purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. It is no substitute for professional care by your doctor or your qualified healthcare professional. Never disregard or delay professional medical advice because of something you've heard on this podcast or in any linked material. Guests who speak on this podcast express their own opinions, experience, and conclusions. Dr. Shirley neither endorses nor opposes any particular opinion discussed on this podcast. The views expressed on this podcast have no relation to those of any academic, hospital, practice, institution, or other entity with which Dr. Shirley may be affiliated. Welcome to Forever Fab, the podcast on fashion, the art of living, and all things beauty. This podcast is curated by Dr. Shirley Madir, MD, as the definitive source of holistic wellness through beauty. Welcome to the Style That Binds Us podcast. We are so excited to be here with Dr. Shirley Madair today, and she is a plastic surgeon. She has a podcast called Forever Fab, and I was on it last year. Thank you so much for having me. She is a graduate of Boston University, and she went to medical school, a combined program with Dartmouth Medical School and Brown University School of Medicine. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you both for having me. How exciting to join you from afar, and yet it still feels as if we're very close. That's nice. I know. We miss you. We miss getting to see you in the city. Now, let's start right away and talk about how, what made you want to be a plastic surgeon? Yeah, that's kind of, probably not a straightforward answer, but I've always been curious. And um, I think my curiosity about the way things work, and most definitely my fascination for the human body, had a lot to do with it. Um, And I think as my desire to figure out what it is that I wanted to do for a career, as that matured, I think it was a combination of that curiosity my um, love of the human body and how it worked, and frankly, a desire to be of service to people and to help people. It was a combination of all of those things that probably went into my ultimate decision to be to a go into medicine and then b decide upon plastic surgery. I think that my study of classical ballet was really just a manifestation of my trying to figure out how the human body worked. So all of that went into it. Fantastic. That's so, so fantastic. I love the reference to ballet and physicality of that. We can talk more about that later. But okay, I'm curious to know, especially about this dual program, what was that like? What was it <laughs> like? Like it must have been really exceptional, but really tough. Yes, it, it was tough. And, you know, I think some of my friends would refer to me as a woman of excess. Um, not, not that I overdo it, you know, in terms of accessories. Maybe I do. Or maybe I walk out out the door and you know how they say, just think about, just take one thing off before you walk out the door. Maybe I leave mine on. Yes. (laughs) But I think for me, my interpretation of that is that I really always wanted to and continue to want to just get the most out of life, to learn the most, experience the most, um, be the most present. I was lucky and I definitely worked hard for it. But I was lucky to be accepted into the combined 
medical school program at Dartmouth and Brown universities. So again, that probably was for me something very exciting because I had two cultures, you know, within one medical school experience. And medical school was a test on many levels. I learned a lot about myself, about others, about the medical system. And after medical school was surgical residency, and I did two of them, one in general surgery and the other in plastic surgery. And surgical residency, both of them were completely different experiences from medical school. Medical school was mostly, you know, books and classrooms and academics. And in the last two years, you got to go around under the tutelage and guidance of your elders and your mentors and your teachers, where surgical residency you're being groomed to operate and work and function and think independently. So my surgical residencies, frankly, were absolute torture. (laughs) And if I will continue with the themes of lessons, both of them for me were lessons in resilience and they were definitely challenging. And yes, learning about the human body, how it works, how it doesn't work, how you can help heal, how you can help treat Those are definitely exciting and challenging subjects, which I loved. But then the other aspects of residency, just learning how to deal with people and administrators and the system were definitely um, difficult. But I got through them and I got through them well. I got through them with grace. Um, I like to say sometimes uh, forgiveness of my my tormentors, (laughs) gratitude for my mentors, uh, faith in my ability, trust in my intentions. support from my family and friends and the idea that I knew that the pain would be finite. (laughs) So that's how I believe that I was successful. Wow. That is truly incredible. And so how did it work with Dartmouth with the two medical schools? Would you spend time on each campus? Were there a lot of people in this program? There were not a lot of people in the program. I believe from my recollection, I had to apply to both and you had to be accepted by both universities (laughs) and medical schools and accepted into their combined program. The first two years, what we call the academic years were spent on the Dartmouth campus in New Hampshire. And that was different for me being from New York City. And the last two years, what we call the clinical years uh, are spent at the Brown University campus in Providence, Rhode Island. So I got a little Hanover, New Hampshire experience and Providence, Rhode Island experience. Oh, that's wonderful. My my cousin went to Dartmouth undergrad and he used to tell us about how they would, in their dorms, they would bring firewood. They had fireplaces in their dorm rooms. Yes. So crazy and romantic. I mean, it just (laughs) sounded so (laughs) <laughs> well, at Dartmouth Medical School, uh, I, we were not given the option, at least back then, of staying on campus, so I stayed off campus. But New Hampshire is beautiful, a beautiful part of the country, and I had, I must say, the most interesting and fabulous apartments. I mean, mm. one, a re- one a renovated barn, another one a modern condo. I mean, it was just, and then the landscape and the scenery, just really cathartic at times, despite <laughs> the, the torture that you were going through. <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, tell us about resiliency. I think that's something that <laughs> a tool that we need a lot of these days, especially. Talk to us about that. Well, resilience is, is a word that I'm 
familiar with and more and more recently um, really have come to embrace because you don't realize that you are learning or gaining resilience until you're going through an experience or even sometimes after you've, you know, gone through it. And so while I was studying, all I could focus on was just trying to be the best that I could be and learn the most and, and do well. And then other, the things that would sometimes happen, whether you got an answer wrong or you got a diagnosis wrong, and if you got a diagnosis wrong, that can have significant impact on others. Or you, you know, put in a, a central venous line in the wrong place. I mean, potentially disastrous effects. Yes, all in the name of, you know, health and healing and helping and learning but at the same time sometimes you don't realize the impact that your actions or lack of actions or behaviors or thoughts may have not only on yourself but on others so resilience for me has been a bit of a journey and I think I'm, I'm still on that journey but I really have come to embrace that as a characteristic that frankly is builds character and helps me to be the woman that I am today. Which is an incredibly fabulous woman. Well, I thank you so much. I do appreciate that. Oh my goodness. So are you type A like us? <laughs> you know, I think there's a little bit of a split personality when it comes to that. I am very, I mean, I'm pretty rigorous and I have my standards and I like things done a certain way. And, and of course, I'm a surgeon. So I have my you know, routines. I've got my checklist. I, I, want, I need things done the way that I like things done. Um, I like my bandages wrapped in a certain way. <laughs> so I am definitely, you know, type A, OCD, like totally obsessive and um, really disciplined when it comes to certain things. However, on the other hand, when I'm chilling, and in my decompression time, I prefer to just go with the flow and try to be open to whatever is presented to me and see what happens. Well, that's great that you can balance it. That's something that we're still trying to master. <laughs> oh, believe me, it isn't easy. And I don't always, you know, balance it that well. I mean, there are some games, are, you know, that when I play, whether it's pool or, you know, chess, checkers, whatever, I'm, I'm always like, take a deep breath, Shirley. <laughs> It doesn't have to be that way. <laughs> just go with the flow. So sometimes I do have to remind myself to just be easy. <laughs> right, the control. We don't have to control everything and take deep breaths. What about putting pressure on ourselves? You were just talking a lot about that. That's something that students do and then probably especially women all throughout our lives do. So any learnings for how to not put pressure on yourself? Yeah, um, I, I do put a lot of pressure on myself because I have high expectations of myself. And one of the ways that I learned to sort of release that pressure is that I had to learn that I am more than enough. So part of my, you know, seeking to be the best that I can be and more letters after my name and, and just do the best and outperform and out this and outwork and it was part of some maybe deep-seated, deep-rooted, oh my goodness, thought that, huh, maybe someone told me once upon a time that something wasn't, um, that I wasn't doing something well, or I wasn't good enough to do A, B, C, D, right. or whatever the case may be. And most, most recently, I can assure you that some of those messages, erroneous messages, came from some of the people who were in my surgical residency and were responsible in part for my education. Um, so it definitely took some time for me to not only 
realize that that was inaccurate, um, but then to believe that that was not true at all. So in knowing that now and believing that, then I was able to release some of that pressure on myself. I don't have to prove anything to anyone. And what I am responsible for is doing the best that I could do to be the best person that I can be, not only for myself, my family and friends, but obviously for my patients as well. Right. Well, it's interesting that you say that. And this is something that mom teaches me and talks me through when if if I'm thinking something or maybe I've had an issue with someone thinking about instead of is that the truth that they're saying their opinion? Well, what is their motive? And it might be an unconscious motive, you know, maybe the people around you are jealous or, you know, who knows why they're telling you that maybe you're not doing a good enough job, which is not true. Does that? Well, well, Mumsy, you're absolutely right. I agree (laughs) with that, (laughs) with that teaching. Um, Because when we are faced with those challenges, right, challenges to our personas, our personalities, whom we think we are, it's important to really stand firm in the belief that, hmm, yeah, that isn't true what this person is saying. And that has nothing to do with me. Perhaps it has more to do with something that they're going through. And to just meet that with not only your knowing who you are and what you're capable of, but also to meet it with compassion for the other person. Right. Like, wow. I'm, you know, it's unfortunate that this person is going through whatever it is that they're going through that made them say this to me or made them act this way. But it's, right. it's, not, it's not about me. Right. It's not, it's not for me to fix. Right. And it's unfortunate that our first instinct many times is maybe I didn't do a good enough job. Maybe I am not a good look. Whatever it is that the person was, even if they didn't say it in words, so many of us, the first response is I didn't, I need to do it better, whatever it is. And, you know, a lot of times it's like, stop. You know, the reason why your boss is yelling is because the company she's working for is falling apart. It has nothing to do with you. You're just standing there. Right. Basically, you know, those kinds of things. And it's very, very hard. You have to be very mature to be able to calmly think, I am doing a great job. It doesn't matter what this person says. I value their opinion. But on this day, at this time, I didn't do anything wrong. And I I agree with that. And uh, I continue to learn it. I have studied a bit of... um, Buddhism, and and not as a true academic, but more as a way of life for me or a a philosophy. And um, one of the principles is loving kindness. And I often believe that that loving kindness has to be directed not only outward, but also inward. So be loving to yourself, be kind to yourself, know who you are and and know you're a good person. That gets all into the female psyche. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Especially professional female psyche. I think we sometimes do a number on on ourselves because we were just extra hard. Right. That's right. And we feel like we have to work harder than, you know, than other people. Yes. Yes. And unfortunately, sometimes we do. I know. I know. Yeah. But that's wonderful. We are very interested in learning more about Buddhism. Jay and I are very much interested in that. We have that as a... Um, we want to, we want to learn about a lot of different things. Certainly. Well, I can certainly, I can certainly send you references because I am oh, not please. the one to teach you. <laughs> no, we'd love to have references. That'd be awesome. We're just okay. trying to figure it out by ourselves. So that'd be awesome. Okay. Um, okay. Ballet near and dear to our hearts. Yes. Um, 
I know you were a dancer like I was. And I'm yes. curious about how you have brought that into your professional life. I am totally indebted to my ballet teachers and to the practice of ballet for teaching me professional discipline. Yes. And I definitely brought that into my training, into my studies. And I believe that discipline was in large part responsible for my resilience and my success in plastic surgery. And there were so many times in residency or medical, medical school that you had opportunities to maybe take an extra long break <laughs> or um, maybe not, you know, study for the 10th hour, maybe just stop at eight. Um, but having that discipline really just kept me going. And ballet also taught me, interestingly, that sometimes through pain, and I don't necessarily mean physical pain, but sometimes through emotional um, sort of angst, beauty emerges. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's right. so good. Yeah, physical yeah. and emotional. Definitely. Yeah, physical, mental, emotional. So I would say, yeah, discipline for sure is what ballet taught me. And I use that to the best of my abilities while I was in school. That's awesome. I think that makes perfect sense. And I think um, striving for excellence, you know, like yes. knowing what it feels like to nail, a, you know, yes. a or whatever it is and always striving and having those people that it, I always try to explain to people that it was such a compliment when your teacher called you out to yes. use your body as an example. It wasn't like, you know, you're, when I would tell my mother, oh, you know, Stefan uh, called me out today and she's like, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm like, mom, I was chosen yeah. me and use me as the example for the whole class. It was amazing, you know. Yes. Kind of thing. So you're just pushing and pushing to, you know, to please your instructor, but also it just feels so wonderful when you when you do it. Yes, it, it yes, definitely to be able to be uh, called out in a positive way and be acknowledged for your efforts and, and your performance is fantastic. Now, during plastic surgery residency, interestingly enough, I was called out many times, but for negative reasons, no, <laughs> um, I, would, I would give what I thought was a brilliant answer. And the teacher, you know, or the other plastic surgeon that would call them attendings in the room would say, oh, my God, that's a horrible answer. I would, oh, never, I would never come to you as a doctor. And oh, yet no. No, one no. of my colleagues who didn't look like me necessarily would give the same answer and most definitely wow. not as eloquently and would be called out in a positive way. So, Oh my gosh. Oh, there are tons of stories like that. But in this way, having dance ballet, however, because not everyone can be the prima, right? But having dance ballet taught me not to necessarily take that personally, even though it was directed Right. Very personally, because I would just think, OK, well, today is not my day and I'm going to be a member you know, of the core. I will not be the prima today, but right. I will keep you know, working hard and I will be a prima one day. So there you have it. So ballet okay. did help me quite a bit. And that goes back also to what's what is what are the preconceptions that this person has that they are, you know, that they are choosing this other person, which is something so typical that happens all the time. But my father studied medicine at Tulane with um, Dr. Ochsner with the yes. clinic. And he was horrendous to study under and to, you know, to go through residency with. However, it was one of the greatest honors of my father's life at the same time. Yes, I'm sure. So, I'm sure. 
Yeah, to learn from those people. You know, yeah, I think you just want to go home and just cry. You know, <laughs> I did many times. I, I, bet, I bet, especially being a female, and you know, let's just get it out there: being a female in this field and everything. At oh the yeah. High, at the one of the you know the top schools in the country. The yes, for sure, being a female, and for sure having the the extra special you know pixie yes. dust of being you know a black woman or a female yes. of color in a, yes. in a surgical. Yes. Yes. Oh my gosh! I'm sure, and it was like you were just chosen because dot dot. Yes, I yes, know. I was chosen because yes. <laughs> ellipsis. That's right. <laughs> you know, forgive them for they know not what they do. Okay, now. And the next question, we're going to move on, and it's how have the requests and ages of people that are reaching out to you um, changed because of social media? You know, do you oh, have, yeah. is it? Oh, yeah. Very relevant question. I mean, these are exceptional times, are they not? Um, right. For, but not only because of the um, pandemic, because also of like the stratospheric rise of social media. Would you not agree that the rise has just been absolutely astronomical? Mind-blowing. Mind-blowing. So now we have the like, pervasiveness. It's, it's an everyday thing, if not multiple times a day. Zoom, um, Skype, StreamYard, so many different social media platforms, including you know, Instagram, Facebook, et cetera, et cetera. Many people are asking, this is no surprise, for facial rejuvenation. Ah. Because now everyone is seeing everyone, not necessarily yeah. the full person, but they're seeing mostly from the hips up or the neck up. Yes. Right? Yes. Yes. So, and I've noticed two trends. So one, people asking for facial rejuvenation, fillers, um, neuromodulators such as Botox and ZMN, VitaGlow or vitamin infusions. And that the other trend that I'm seeing on the other hand are those who have embraced a more natural and even untouched version of themselves. And they, even though they may not be asking for injectables, they are actually asking for ways to obtain or maintain healthy skin and how to have it be more radiant and glowing. And that's nice. Yeah. That's nice. And, and it's so, I never even, I thought about, you know, I've heard all these stories about people coming in and saying, you know, I want to look like my Instagram filter version of myself. <laughs> I hadn't thought about Zoom. I mean, I talk to women all the time about, you know, raise up the laptop to eye level so you're not yeah. down and make right. sure your lighting is good. But I never thought about, but it makes perfect sense because I think especially when people don't set it up correctly, as we know what it looks like when we take a selfie, it's pretty, it can be hard. I'll just say that. <laughs> so they yeah, see that and they immediately, I'm sure, think this is, you know, it's, it's humiliating. You know, unfortunately, it, it can be humiliating when you're, you're meeting with people and you're, it's very distracting. You can't think about what you're saying because you're looking at it going, I'm just, you know, scary looking, you know. I, it's very, it's all very interesting because I think many of us don't, I think we perceive ourselves differently from uh, obviously the way people see us. So we may think right. we appear one way to people and yet it isn't necessarily that way. And right. sometimes when we see each other on the zoom or the Skypes or whatever, and you, you really sort of, it's, it's a, it's a, it captures a glimpse. It captures a moment in time where whatever is going on, you know, on your mind, is is captured right there in front of you and you're looking at it 
Right. And so I think it's very interesting perception and reality and how you feel that you look is projected onto the screen, but not necessarily onto the other person. It's all very interesting psychological dynamics of beauty, which I totally love. (laughs) Very interesting. That's so much like with my clients when they say, um, I really hate this so-and-so about me, you know, and I was thinking, well, that's not the thing I was noticing at all. Do you know what I mean? And, and, you know, we tell each other that all the time. No one's going to see that, but you, no one's going to notice that you have a pimple. No one's going to notice this. But when you look in the mirror, you zoom right in on it. Yeah. Yeah. It's human nature. We all have our things. Yes. Right. This is something that's interesting that I haven't thought about until now consciously since you said that was in the past when we would have meetings like when I was at Barney's you sit around a table and you you don't see yourself Mm -hmm. but now when we're having these zoom meetings now you're seeing yourself so that's really interesting yeah right (laughs) and listen and we all have mirrors but even when you look into a mirror you're kind of approaching the mirror with some sort of preconceived notion about yourself, right? I wake up in the morning. The first thing I do is one of the first things I do is I look in the mirror, but I don't think to myself, oh, my face is red. I just approach the mirror and I just say, I ask myself, all right, what's going on today? (laughs) (laughs) What's going on today? Exactly. I feel like a lot of people on these Zoom calls just look at themselves most of the time. Well, probably so. Most people watch themselves. (laughs) <laughs> you know, yeah. don't I mean, some people just love themselves so much that they can only see themselves. Who knows? <laughs> oh, my goodness. That's <laughs> Tell us about your decision to start your podcast, Forever Fab. Oh, my goodness. My podcast, Forever Fab. I, I resisted for so long. And why? I mean, I don't know. No one was telling me I couldn't do it. It was resisting myself. I ultimately decided to do it because I just felt for a long time that there was a specific voice missing in the fields of beauty, wellness, and frankly, plastic surgery. Mm -hmm. And I felt that I was one, I was a voice, not necessarily the only voice or the voice, but I was a voice that was credible, educated, professional, and passionate. And not only that, but a woman and a woman of color. I felt that that voice, that perspective was not out there. And I had something to say. So I thought, you know what? Um, I'm going to manifest that voice and I'm going to shout it out for the world to hear and join me. And frankly, if I have one listener and subscriber, that's fine. If I have 1000, that's fine. It was mostly for me, a way to shake things up and encourage myself to do something way beyond my comfort zone. Um, And I tend to take discomfort in some circumstances as, hmm, I'm uncomfortable. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm nervous. And that must mean I have to do it. (laughs) Exactly. That's what we all need to do. Right. So going beyond my comfort zone, for me, it was a way to grow, to evolve, to innovate, to communicate with um, not only my patients, but with um, other people who are not my patients, uh, mm-hmm. to express myself and maybe to, maybe to create a community that was in alignment with some of the things that I was saying or some of my views and values and, um, and just to, you know, create a tribe that way. 
Right. Well, I'm so glad that we asked that question. And you're such a wonderful example because a lot of times it's like Misty Copeland. You need to see yourself in a field or a position. So that is Mm -hmm. you could, you know, who knows how many careers you could launch or some little girl sees you and then she's like, oh, I could be a plastic surgeon. Absolutely. Right. And the women that, you know, don't have anyone to ask these questions to or to learn about things. Um, You know, maybe at the time they don't, you know, they never, they don't have the money to start the journey with the plastic surgery or anything. They can just start listening to you and understanding more about, you know, what what it all is. I think it's a remarkable thing. Thank you very much. And I hope I could serve as a mentor to, to someone, some little girl, some little boy, whoever, yeah. some some little non-identified gender fluid, yeah. whoever. All yes. of it, yes. <laughs> but to serve as inspiration would be uh, deeply fulfilling for me. Yes. Well, you're definitely doing that. And in one of your answers, the question about different ages coming in because of social media, what are your thoughts on the current global state of self <laughs> Confidence. Are we are we in a horrible place? <laughs> oh my gosh! It is a thing. That's the right it's question. A thing. No, it's it's a thing. It's a thing for sure. Boy, confidence and self confidence. Well, I think the obvious answer is that we cannot look for it outside of ourselves. Mm. It's it's a very difficult thing, mm-hmm. right? Um, values experiences, you know, uh, bombardment of messages from the media, from friends, from, oh my goodness, you have to just seek that approval mm-hmm. um, from within. Right. And it is it is with that, that armor that you can then, you know, go out there and, and address the world and address the inequalities and the inequities and the right. imbalances. Um, but I do believe that it's really important to try to find that within ourselves because at least in, in my experience in the past, no one gives that to you for free, for sure. That's right. Oh, my goodness. I know. It's so unfortunate that it is very easy to – our sense of self is like, oh, how many – I didn't get enough likes on that photo. Right, right. me. So that is a huge <laughs> issue. You know, with regard to my podcast, I don't – people will ask me, how many subscribers do you have? I honestly do not know. Same. Right. I refer them to the production team. I say, I, I don't know. And I'm not sure if that means that, you know, I'm not a good operator. I, it doesn't really matter. I initially started it because I, I really wanted to be able to, to say something. And I, I wanted to create um, a, a space where other people could, could talk about those things. And it, it wasn't a matter of likes for me. Now, I know the reality is that in order for you to collaborate or to be heard, um, on a larger platform, right. for sure, it's important to know those numbers. But I'm lucky I have a really great production team that keeps track of that for me. And they give me ideas all the time. They say, well, maybe you should consider this, that, and the other. Um, but I am glad that the primary reason of my starting the podcast was not to have more likes. Oh, gosh, right. We really shouldn't value human beings on right. how many the number, the audience size of their platform, but more about. Well, and then you find out, you know, I heard, I think it was Jonathan Anderson, somebody talking about, um, isn't he with Loewe? Yeah. Talking about um, getting back to the joy of creating content rather than pushing all this content out in hopes of getting likes and hopes of getting sales. So, you know, it, it, if you, if you create a podcast, you know, 
it's, we took a class about writing a blog post and one of the professors said, if you're in this room to get famous, you don't need to be in here. You know, it's kind of like if, if you are creating a podcast or anything else, an Instagram post desperately, you know, for these, these likes, then it, it's never going to be a success, first of all. And I totally agree with you. It also could make you not do your best work on the podcast because you would be nervous that, you know, the likes weren't going to be enough. Or anytime people ask us, can we see your numbers? We, you know, we're like, we'll show you our numbers, but it kind of almost makes us not even want to work with. Yeah. Yeah. I, I understand that. I mean, it's, and there's something about, you know, I know this word is probably overused, but, but it's a real word. There's something about being authentic. Right. Right. And um, putting out something that you believe in, and that you're not just, you know, doing it to get a rise out of people, but um, that is real for you. So I, I try to adhere to those, you know, to those parameters and my truth. And if I feel that my truth would be too polarizing, then that's something that I reserve for discussions with my personal circle or my concentric circle, you know, of friends and family. I don't have to put it out there. If, you know, no. if I think it's going to be insulting, what's the point? That's There's plenty exactly. of that in life. Why, why contribute? Right. 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 Why? Exactly right. That's exactly right. We, we try certainly to put, never put out content that might make someone else feel less about themselves, you know? Yeah. Especially as women, right? We are, as, as women, we're part of, you know, that feminine energy tribe. So why right. would we not want to support each other and elevate each other and help to make the world a better place, you know, through our power? Absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. What are the latest discoveries in cosmetic plastic surgery? Ooh, I love this. <laughs> I love this question. Um, I'm always reading and there's always, you know, something happening. I just have to be careful because some of those things are still experimental. However, newsflash, the FDA just approved, like literally in the past couple of days, just approved an injectable for the management of cellulite. OMG. Oh my gosh. Are you kidding me? <laughs> well, I had it as a question for you. Like, is there ever any, ever anything <laughs> that can help with cellulite? Well, hope has arrived and it comes in the form of an injection. Wow. wow. <laughs> That's so exciting. I have known about this particular ingredient, the active ingredient, for, for several years. Uh, it isn't a new um, sort of newly manufactured um, medication. It's, it's been around for several years. This is just a new application of it. But I'm hoping this would be a game changer because there's so many. First of all, we don't really have an exact handle on what, quote unquote, causes cellulite. Um, it isn't a disease, even though I know some people would think that it is, but it is not a disease. Um, it, it's just this thing that happens. It's a condition. And because it's a combination of multiple events, right, multiple factors that sort of coalesce to become this appearance and change the tissues in a way, it's hard to really pinpoint and say, oh, if you take care of this one thing, then your cellulite will appear, Nevertheless, um, I think with this new injectable having been FDA approved, I, th I think it could potentially be a game changer because even if it didn't answer the question or re resolve the issue 100%, it could definitely be used as an adjunct or complement to other therapies, right? Mm -hmm. So that's exciting. Very. 
Other injectables that are coming out that I believe are in the pipeline, I know this one may already exist in Europe, but has not been FDA approved in the United States yet, is one that could serve as a temporary filler for the breast and the bum. Oh, interesting. Isn't that interesting? So imagine if, you know, you were thinking to yourself, hmm, you know, I've always been interested in, you know, a a breast enhancement or just a little bit more volume on my rear end, but I don't want to commit to the the time, the expense, the recovery. Um, And frankly, I don't want to commit to having, you know, an implant in my body. Right. So in the pipeline, potentially, are these injections that are made of an ingredient that, are, that is similar to the injections some people already undergo to enhance their lips and their cheeks, but, but you know, different. Imagine if you could get that injection to enhance your breasts or your bum for up to 18 or so months. That'd be interesting, wouldn't it? Wow. Fascinating. Oh, and then it gets metabolized. It goes away. Okay. And then you have the option of either repeating it, doing nothing, or moving ahead and actually getting implants. So I think that also is very exciting. That oh, is like huge. That. It's a yeah. Yeah. I mean, a woman needs options, you know? Yes. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I know. I'll be interested to know if they start doing that, if plastic surgery for either of those permanent ones increases because maybe it would be very interesting yeah 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 if they did and it may right because it gives you like a trial yeah right yeah that's a great I thought you were going to say like you know goes away but instead it's like it might actually you know right yeah that's interesting yeah they were on the fence before and they were like well I just can't do it it's permanent you know whatever and then if they can try it'll be interesting to see if if that is on the increase, what is your favorite surgery to perform? Oh, I have a few. Yeah, <laughs> tell us. I have a few. Um, I love rhinoplasty or nose reshaping. Mm-hmm. I, because, you know, the nose is central to your face and to be able to enhance that or modify it in a way that really helps the person to just settle into who they know they can really be, I think is pretty, that's pretty remarkable. I also love performing breast lifts. What is that? A breast lift. Yeah. So, (laughs) yep. (laughs) Mastopexy or breast lift. And also tummy tuck or abdominoplasty. Those are probably my top three. Oh, BB's and glad my, my daughter <laughs> patting me on the shoulder with everything you see. Like, is that a big hint to you? <laughs> <laughs> well, she complains about all these things all the time. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, those are probably, you know, my top three, followed closely by a facelift. Oh. Yeah, and then, um, and then probably lipo. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I need to know more about all that. <laughs> because there is a lot of creativity in, involved in plastic surgery. It isn't just a matter of picking up a scalpel or, you know, a liposuction cannula and going through the motions. I mean, you have to ideally have to have, you know, a, a vision of and the creativity to, you know, help shape and mold and sculpt. Well, I was about to say it's like being a sculptor. Literally, it's like it's, it's an art. I, I really think it's an art. Well, you know, I like to think so. 
Um, and I, and I'm sure a lot of my colleagues feel the same way. So, yeah, it's form and function uh, the two sort of very basic fundamental tenets of plastic surgery, you know, form, you know, what's the shape, how does it look like but also function. <laughs> it might look great, but does it work? That's really true. <laughs> <laughs> you can sleep. Right. So they, they, they go hand in hand. What do you recommend? So, you know, let's say someone is in another part of the country and they can't come to see you. What should they look for in a plastic surgeon? Well, I am honored that they would even consider coming to see me. Um, but I think it's important to really take into consideration, you know, that surgeon's training level. I know there are, there have been so many changes in um, medicine and especially in cosmetic medicine in the past several years. And I know that there are lots of people who feel very comfortable performing uh, different procedures, whether those are, you know, minor in-office procedures or actual surgery. I think that it is really important to be aware of that practitioner's level of training. Um, I know that there are some courses that are offered where people can go in for a weekend and learn how to do a particular technique. Um, uh, personally, I would not be comfortable with that level of training. Uh, and I'm not saying that, you know, your surgeon has to have, you know, triple PhDs and this, that, and the other, um, that, that isn't necessarily it, but I think it's important to know, um, what kind of training that that person has had and be able to choose accordingly, according to your comfort level. And that is another thing I think, uh, one should look for, um, not only the training level, but the practitioner's experience and whether or not they've had experience not only performing the operation, but um, experience or knowledge in dealing with and managing any complications, because that also goes potentially hand in hand with preparing for surgery, not only knowing the benefits and how fabulous you can look, but also being very aware of the risks, the limitations, because surgery may not answer all the questions, uh, as well as the potential complications. And this is not to say complications will happen, yeah. but there is certainly a potential for them. And it's important that everyone is aware of that. Yeah. And then also be, be comfortable. Once you meet with this person, you know, physician, practitioner, provider, whatever you'd like to call him or her, you have to feel comfortable. I mean, in, in, intuit that meeting and with, would you feel comfortable go, you know, walking hand in hand to the operating room table, you know, with this person and becoming a partner in care, in your care with this person? I think all of those are important. You've just listened to part one of Forever Fab podcast. Please stay tuned for part two coming up next.